Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today we dig deeper into the meaning of the remarkable federal election we just witnessed on the weekend. We discuss what is and what should be on the agenda for the returned coalition government and look at future directions for the centre-left and progressives generally in the wake of what for them was a very unexpected defeat. As always, we'll close with our Books and Culture segment where we'll look at the a new show on the birth of Silicon Valley, take a virtual trip through the JFK Museum in Dallas, review the new book on atheism by the British philosopher John Gray, and, well, surprise, surprise, we'll reflect a little bit on the end of Game of Thrones after eight seasons and what that all means, not just for Game of Thrones, but for television generally. We have some great panellists today on the line direct from the temporary home of the great global free market conspiracy in Texas. We have my co-host from RMIT University, Dr. Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. I'm at uh, the Mont Pelerin Society meeting, which I may or may not be allowed to talk about. Oh, but, that's, um, that, that's right. The, it's a, it's a fantastic gathering founded by Hayek. That's yeah. very exciting every time, the every great, time I come back. The great man, yeah. Everyone thinks the world's run by the Trilateral Commission, but actually it's you guys, so that's that's good to hear. With me in the studio today is our Director of Research, Daniel Wilde. Good morning. And the IPA's Director of Policy, Gideon Rosner. G'day, great to be back. It's great to have you back on Looking Forward. Um, as I say, we're going to uh, look at the election from multiple angles, but let's start with... Uh, what happened, uh, what surprised us, and, and, and what does it uh, actually tell us about Australia? Daniel Wild. Well, what happened was a surprise miracle victory, as described by the Prime Minister of the Coalition over the weekend. Uh, they're currently on 76 seats, which is enough to give them a majority, possibly 77 or 78, depending on how the counting goes in the last few seats. Labor, and that would be a net gain of three up to five seats for them after the forecast that they would actually go backwards. Uh, Labor currently on 65 seats, a net loss of two seats with uh, six seats at the moment for independents or other parties. So a surprise victory for the coalition driven by primarily Queensland, big swings uh, towards the LNP in Queensland, as well as holding on in areas in Western Australia, uh, making some gains in New South Wales uh, and some gains in Tasmania. So the interesting thing here is really the the idea that a new heartland is developing for the coalition where you have suburban, outer suburban, rural voters uh, moving to the coalition or staying with the coalition um, over the issues of climate change, uh, tax rises, and also uh, a very much uh, out of touch uh, political elite from, from Sydney and Melbourne being comprehensively um, rejected. So I, I think a, I would say a collective sense of relief uh, amongst many on the centre-right uh, that we dodged uh, a bullet, uh, wouldn't you say, Gideon? Uh, well, absolutely. Um, this is a... I mean, I'd love to be one of those commentators who said I knew from day one that the coalition was fine. I knew people would never embrace Bill Shorten. Unfortunately, I was not. I was very, very pessimistic. I uh, thought that this would be a complete washout. But And everybody's saying that it's a bit like the 1993 election, you know, the unlosable election, one after all. I think it's a lot more like the 2004 election. Uh, this... You know, we, Mark Latham tends to be a bit more of a, uh, a right-wing pin-up boy these days, but back in 2004 he ran a very or a similar program to Shorten insofar as he had a very redistributive platform. A lot of, um, uh, you know, there, there was a school's hit list, there was Medicare Gold, there were all sorts of tinkering around with family payments, which was very complex. And everybody expected Mark Latham to win, not, it wasn't as, the writing wasn't so much as on the walls it was this time around. But election night came, uh, 
the coalition picked up seats and there was this idea and this this revelation that people had rejected this redistributive um, politics of envy class warfare platform and Australians actually did uh, value aspiration, that they did want to make a bit of money and uh, and work hard and enjoy that reward for effort. So this feels like that a very radical... This is less about the re-election of Scott Morrison, although that's a great achievement, but it is about the comprehensive rejection of a very, very different set of values uh, to what Australians apparently wanted. Yeah, for me... Was it, was it though, Gideon? Because, because one of the issues, I think, it, it's a massive surprise victory, but how much of a victory is it? So they've got, as, as Dan's just pointed out, they've got either between 76 and 78 seats. Now, that's not a huge victory. In fact, it pales in comparison to both recent um, victories and victories like the 2004 victory where the coalition under Howard actually won 87 seats. Now, if you think back to the last nail-biter of an election, Howard won it more handily than Scott Morrison did. So I don't I don't deny that this is an important victory, but it's an important victory mostly in reflection of what everybody had expected for a while. And and I sort of, I'm, I'm worried about this claim that we've, we've launched a sort of permanent revolution against the left or there's some, some conservative victory here or some conservative um, revolt because previous um, elections of this government, the Abbott um, uh, election in 2013, also won more seats. He won, uh, Tony Abbott won 90 seats. So this is a this is a big and important victory, but only because it's a surprise. No, but also you have to look at the, the circumstances though as well. I mean, Abbott won... Uh largely because of the chaos and dysfunction in the Labor Party, as well as their lousy policies. Uh, the, the coalition, let's face it, has had similar uh, or even worse dysfunction for the last six years. Uh, the, the traditional donors who would usually give both sides or favour the Liberal Party gave to Labor largely. The, the coalition was vastly outspent. Uh, the efforts of GetUp and all sorts of other groups coming out of the woodwork. Uh, th- this was a very, very, very difficult campaign for the coalition to win and against all the odds uh it did which and and so i think you have to you know yeah in, uh, in terms of absolute seats uh it was you know less than a landslide certainly but if you look at it compared even compared to the 2016 election where under which malcolm turnbull barely scraped by despite much more favorable circumstances despite all the lead in the saddles people still looked at Labor and went nah, and the uh, but the other dynamic is this: this uh, at this election, I think Labor was so widely expected to win that they became the de facto government. Um, it was all, for the first yeah, time look, we've look, seen a protest vote against an opposition. No, and I think that's again, Gideon. I think that's the right way to frame it because um, against all odds, not just the polls would mm. say that the, the coalition government has had really serious problems that. If you knew nothing about the polls, you would expect them to be kicked out. But my my point is, so so for instance, Malcolm Turnbull won 76 seats at the last election in 2016. Scott Morrison, so far, and this will probably increase, but so far, also has 76 seats. Whether it goes up one or two or even a couple more, it looks a bit like the status quo so against all odds. But that, I think we that's part that part of the, the point. It's it's a, um, a, a a refutation of a radical reform agenda is how I interpret it. So mm. the Labor Party Correct. wanted to 
fundamentally transform every aspect of Australian life, um, whether it was economically with the climate change agenda, whether it was culturally with uh, referendums on Indigenous recognition, the Republic, um, the ongoing identity politics, which has become such a central part of the Labor Party. Um, the fact that Australians voted for the status quo, which is far from perfect, but they voted on the whole in favour of the status quo against a radical reformation of Australia in all those dimensions, to me is the the endearing part of the victory. And, and, uh, and yeah, so you could say in, in some way this is a, a truly conservative uh, victory in the sense of uh, mostly they were saying we're not going to do anything in particular other than, you know, the old-fashioned balance the budgets. Now, uh, we're... There is actually a, an entire, you know, an entire field which we'll get to in, uh, in a little while about what a centre-right government could be doing. But certainly, uh, this is a conservative victory. But that, but that is no small thing um, because it, it does, uh, I think, lead to a settling of some questions that the uh, that the Liberal Party in particular has had over a period of time that. Um, conservatism was was exhausted in this country. That what was needed uh, was some kind of uh, progressive liberalism. Uh, this became associated with with Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, he was its champion, um, but um, uh, wasn't limited to him, and it's still not limited to him. And 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 of course, we shouldn't assume that the uh, Liberal Party is now an entirely conservative beast just because it's run by a conservative prime minister. But one of the things that has happened, and and politics shouldn't be about personalities, but it is, is that clearly this this division or you know existential crisis in the Liberal Party was driven very much by politics and by Malcolm Turnbull. And, yeah, yeah. and really, all that they had to do was sack him twice <laughs> when he went off the reservation, first over Copenhagen and the second time over Neg. And, um, National Energy Guarantee. Thank you, thank you, Daniel, uh, for our factual uh, <laughs> factual reference there. Um, yeah, very much bubble. 20, 25 years in energy, I, I keep doing that. Um uh, and and Shorten, of course, thought that was his lines for the entire campaign. He was talking top end of town and he was talking about chaos and division in the Liberal Party. But both of those things actually disappeared pretty much immediately after um, Scott Morrison had got himself into the lodge and he stretched it out for as long as he could, quite rightly, and by the time he got there, those, those lines weren't working anymore. So I think perhaps an election of consolidation, we'll know in, you know, three years' time, whether it was consolidation as a, as a platform for further growth or whether it was just an aberration. But uh, I think it's significant because it's, it's really closing the door on uh, the Liberal Party tearing itself apart over uh, an imagined future in, in progressivism. That's a really, really before important... We, oh, sorry, Chris, the, Yeah, before we get to sort of the, the Liberal Party itself and sort of the future of conservatism, which is obviously really important. I hope we can talk about it at some length. I think there's a couple of really interesting things that um, have come out of this. First one um, is an observation I'll make that it's kind of a cheap observation, but I really like. So it's about the polls. So I, like you, Gideon, I was certain that they were going to lose and they were going to lose badly. We made jokes about it on the Looking Forward podcast. And the reason that I thought that and the reason that everybody thought that was because the polls looked really bad. Now, what's nice about this is that also every other journalist in Australia also thought the same thing. What that tells me is that, is that journalists don't have some secret window into the psyche of the Australian public. I read so many articles by 
journalist in The Guardian and the Fairfax or the Channel 9 newspapers where they're talking about what Australians think, how Australians are feeling. They're angry about this. They're furious about that. Turns out they're just reading the same polls we are. Um, and we don't have a very good way to understand precisely what the Australian population is. Or worse, they're the going on Twitter for that kind people. of information. Well, well, yeah, they're going on, they're going on Twitter, but, but they're, they're, they're dealing with the vibe like everybody else. Now, mm. you know, the parties have some, some uh, focus polls and uh, focus groups and so forth that might help them break through that. But it is just really hard to figure out what the population thinks, and I like that journalists have got no extra idea. Uh, other, Chris, Chris sorry, just, just before you go to your second point, I will uh, interpolate. Uh, with the honourable exception uh, of The Spectator and our, our dear friend Rowan <laughs> Dean, who never wavered <laughs> from his belief that once they'd got, gotten rid of Malcolm Turnbull, there was a road to victory and that they would, in fact, win. He never wavered. So um, uh, all credit to The Spectator well, for that. <laughs> and, 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 yes, and good for Rowan. Um, the, other, the other thing that I think is worth having a conversation I'd like your guys view about it is that this is not a big this is not a very successful election for the minor parties so obviously we don't have the final Senate numbers and it looks uh, but it doesn't look like there'll be many minor party senators um, we might get Malcolm Roberts in Queensland the one nation and a formal one nation Senate now potentially returned we might well I think we'd probably get Jackie Lambie as well but apart from that it doesn't look like the last couple of um, uh, election cycles where you have this huge spurt of minor party support. Strangely, at least my reading of the um, results, they seem to be coming back to the majors, or, or at least um, uh, the majors and the Greens. So I can talk. Does, to this, does this mean that we're at the end of populism? Is that the, is, are we moving away from that? Um, I'd, I'd be interested in your views. I'll talk to that one, Chris, because I, I, in a past life, I had a bit to do with the redesign of the Senate voting system. This is. Um, largely because so well uh, no 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 important democratic reform um, well uh, this is because the the new system the 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 largest change being the elimination of group ticket voting. So before, a, a guy like Glenn Drury was able to stitch up a deal between all the micro parties and effectively pull their votes into one, meaning that in most states or many states, you'd get a wild card result like a Ricky Muir or a John Madigan or um, uh, you know um, even David Lionhelm and things like that. Uh, unexpectedly, uh, this now. Uh, the system was brought in before the last election, but because of the double dissolution, the quota was lower, so people with a profile like David Lionhelm and Bob Day and so on are re-elected. But now that we're at a half-Senate election, we basically need... Um, the quota is 14.3%, but if for the sixth spot, you might squeak by with 9%, 10% of the vote, but anything south of that, you really don't get much of a look in. So this is the system working exactly as it should. If you look at the vote that these parties got, it was a little bit down from last time, but... Uh, under the old system, we would certainly have seen a few wild cards in in various states. The major parties wanted to get rid of um, competition. That's that's what that basically was, and um, a classic example of the political class trying to shut out you know anyone who's not from their club. Um, no, so I don't think it's the end of populism. I think populism basically started here with 2013 with Abbott, and it's it's kind of always simmered um, underneath um, underneath the system. Um, and underneath our culture for for some time, the as you mentioned, the massive victory of Abbott, I think, was on the back of you know dis dysfunction of Labor, but it was also anti carbon tax. I mean, this is the second time uh, climate change has been rejected, uh, twenty thirteen and now in twenty twenty nineteen. Uh, so the, the populism in Australia won't be the outside force that it was in the US or in 
the UK with Brexit or in some of the nations of Europe. And part of the reason is for that for that is because the conditions here are much different. We don't have a massive illegal immigration problem. We don't have a a, a, a massive single issue like Brexit. We don't have an Angela Merkel. We don't have a Rio Grande. We don't have the same conditions here that would drive and propel um, those kind of forces. Um, and instead, it, it looks like they're going to be largely accommodated within the political system. And I could say um, you you could you could see elements of populism um, with Scott Morrison with his more uh, kind of folksy approach to campaigning rather than the the sort of Bill Shorten stilted. Uh, talking points approach, although I have no doubt that Morrison was probably informed by a lot of focus groups as well. Um, but there was there was a, a more of a turn towards I'm a normal suburban dad. Um, I'm one of you. I'm not one of the political class. Um, even though he is one of the political class, he managed to play that role, and that means it'll be contained within, um, hopefully, within the Liberal Party. Um, Chris, uh, I just want to build on what you just said because I I think there is a a consolidation, um, and I've actually got some numbers because I. I saw a, uh, a professor of political science in the paper saying, well, here's another election where voters have rejected uh, the major political parties. And I thought, well, if it's a professor of political science, it's probably wrong. Because <laughs> um, he was using this figure of 25% um, uh, outside the major parties. But, of course, he only got that by excluding the Greens, who have, um, yeah. according to the AEC, 9.99. Now, the Greens are actually just a very, actually a very stable feature of Australian political life now. And uh, we talked on the um, podcast a few weeks ago that uh, the Labor-Green de facto alliance has been institutionalised on the left uh, for a long time now. It was, it was a shock when Graham Richardson introduced it in, um, uh, I can't remember whether it was 1990 or 1993, but it's now a stable feature. And and we were talking about, you know, is there scope for the institutionalisation on the right? And I think that is actually what we are seeing because, uh, so one, uh, if it's 85% major parties, including the Greens, all the varieties of coalition, Labor and Greens, and if you add another 3% from One Nation, you're, you're up to over 88% of the vote is in pretty familiar parties. And, um, and on the right, what we saw was a was a very impressive and stable preference flow back to the coalition in a way I don't think we've seen before. And this is what I mean by institutionalisation. One Nation used to campaign against Malcolm Turnbull as much as they were campaigning against Labor and the Greens, but they, they really locked in behind the centre-right. So um, using our preference system, I, I think this is uh, perhaps the, a future where you've got – you might have some splinters on, on the left, uh, like the Greens, or on the right, like One Nation – uh, but really, it's actually a pretty stable platform, and it's not a it's not a populist eruption, and it's not a destruction of politics as we know it. That's right. And and when I've well, I've always sort of tried to well, in in previous years, it's been nearly twenty five percent, including the Greens, as a uh, nearly twenty five percent. I should say reject all major parties when you include the Greens as a major party. And so this this from the the data that we've seen so far seems to be. Seems to be a rejection of that. I guess. I guess that's the that's the question, and that's the interesting point that Dan is raising. Are the parties themselves, both the coalition and the Labor Party, are they bringing in some of that rejection of the status quo into their policy frameworks? And we'll talk about Labor later. But I think there's a, there's a case that they both are trying to do so. What does that look like on the left, though, Chris? To what extent was Labor running a, a populist campaign? Is this sort of the top end of town element? Yeah, the, the, the top end of town, the generic change the rules, 
Um, I, I think that the the idea that uh, was it Chris Bowen saying, you know, if you don't like it, don't vote for it. That's clearly a um, uh, a, a, a div- not a division uh, approach, but it's clearly a um, good guys bad guys approach. And I think there's a big claim that you could make that the party that looked most populist in in that traditional populist sense was the Labor Party rather than the coalition of this. And yeah, I do I do take Dan's point that Scott Morrison had this sort of, I'm an Aussie dad and all that sort of stuff. But I don't think that's quintessentially popular. I think that's just normal politics. I think the um, idea that there are good guys and bad guys is the more populist measure. And on that measure, the Labor Party looks more populist this election. Uh, very good. Um, so Scott Morrison is still Prime Minister and uh, does have a majority uh, in the lower house and has a much more, uh, potentially a much more amenable Senate. So what actually does the uh, the program for the coalition government look like? Well, that is the question. Uh, there isn't really much of a... <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> that, there isn't much of a program. What's the, this is what Gideon was getting at before, whereas it, it felt like the coalition was coming from opposition uh, because they were running against Labor. Labor was setting the agenda and the coalition was said if Labor wins... They're going to tax you, and you're going to have a a, a an unrealistic uh, climate change policy. Those were the two fronts, as well as specific attacks on Bill Shorten as an individual, as compared with Scott Morrison. So they have a mandate for their tax cuts, which they put forward in the last budget, the income tax cuts, which they will want to press ahead with and proceed with. Uh, but beyond those tax cuts, it isn't immediately apparent what their mandate is. I think on climate, they'll stick with what they have, which is the Paris Paris Climate Agreement. Um, they won't do any more. Hopefully, they'll let the renewable energy target expire. Uh, but one of the main, I think, challenges for us, not just at the IPA, but those more broadly on the centre-right, is to try and ensure that the coalition actually does something constructive with this victory. The The, the worst-case scenario for, our, for, for the right, and I think also for the country, is that the coalition does does a little bit of budget, a little bit of notional deregulation. Um, they say the right things on industrial relations but don't do much. They're a little bit of border security. Three years' time, six years' time, they've not really done anything useful. Uh, and then Labor win on basically the same platform as they had right now. So that's if the coalition doesn't do something substantive, that's where we'll end up going. This is the, this is the worst time for a government, in, in my view. It's that third or fourth term, particularly when they've won a surprising victory, just like Howard did in 2004, and they feel that it's a validation of their strategy, they feel that it's a validation of sort of weak policy settings, but they also think that they are geniuses at the same time. And the worst thing for us as a centre-right movement, whether it's libertarians or classical liberals or conservatives, would be to, 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 to convince the coalition that they won this on the merits or that they won it on, on their own merits rather than beating back, quite rightly, a very high-taxing potential Labor government. We have I, to make sure that they know that we're still watching. Yeah, I think uh, – I'm not optimistic that this will be a big reforming government, um, a, because, you know, as Dan said, it didn't take particularly <laughs> m- many reforms to this election. But as I said, this was a 2004 election, which means that uh, there is a danger that the next election will be a 2007 election. Uh, I think Labor will be a what, lot What more, do you mean by that? Uh, as in so Labor will come back with an Anthony Albanese. So 20, two, 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 2004, they sort of lost their heads a bit, is that? 2004, Labor, you know, thought they were in with a chance, ran a lousy campaign and – with 
dud policies, realise that the politics of envy and class warfare and that kind of populism just doesn't wash with areas they need to pick up and they'll come back with a probably an Anthony Albanese who will try to pitch himself like a Kevin Rudd, a unifier, somebody who uh, will give you the coalition's relaxed and comfortable ethic plus, you know, plus a few reforms on the margins. But you were making the point the other day that it was actually the coalition after that election, though, that then did, well, this is how we got work choices. Well, that, that's my second point. Morrison will know that the biggest, the worst thing you can do is bring a reform on the on the Australian people that Labor will a you know tear to shreds and use for scare campaigns, but b comes out of nowhere. He 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 will be keen to but continue the softly softly approach and avoid putting up a work choices or something else that upsets the apple cart. Uh, what I think that we might see a little bit more of though is Morrison pushing the boat out on the culture wars. I think that there was a. Israel Folau factor at this election. I think the Israel Folau stuff hit the news at the right time. Not that the coalition made any noise or any, uh, you know, was particularly sympathetic to Folau, but Morrison has talked about religious freedom. His solutions aren't quite what we'd like, but he has talked about the problem of encroachments on religious freedom in this country. And also, I think Labor at the end, when they started to put um, ScoMo on the spot saying, do you believe that gays go to hell, yes or no? I think a lot of people looked at that and said, hang on, this is really cheap, divisive politics. I think that was almost um, was almost uh, uh, Bill Shorten's Mark Latham handshake moment. Yeah, was it uh, Christina Keneally calling him a hypocrite and quote, quoting scripture back at Scott Morrison, yeah. which was very strange. Um, I and think that fueled the protest vote. So I think we'll, we, we will see ScoMo, uh, you know, if not for anything other reason, put for political sort of reasons, using it as saying, look, we are on the side of the mainstream, we support mainstream values, we stand, we, we stand against the social engineering, radical change, uh, identity politics yeah. view of the left, and... Now that might be a yeah. Well, they have the they have put some markers down, and, and this is a, a, a potentially a minefield, but also an opportunity for them because uh, they did have uh, I think it was Phil Ruddick did a review into um, uh, protection of religious freedoms. Uh, Dan Teen commissioned a code of conduct into universities. So on the one hand, Morrison says I don't want to get involved in culture wars. You know, famously said of reforms to eighteen C. You know, I wouldn't build any roads. Um, but there are some markers, you know, some work that they did in the last term and some issues like Israel Folau, which bring it to the fore. They can't they, – they do actually have a mandate to do something. Mm. They don't have a mandate to do something specific, but they can't not do something. <laughs> they do, so, but – You have to claim a mandate. The thing <laughs> – Retrospective the, the broader mandate. thing, the, the broader approach I, th- I think the coalition needs to be looking at is the actual um, – how to establish institutional bullocks against the ongoing erosion of the mainstream that voted for them. This is something the coalition typically has succeeded at when it's governed for a long time. Menzies and Howard uh, were able to featherbed their broad coalition that kept them in power, and Hawke was also very good at that. Um, they need to understand that it's really homeowners, uh, families, small business formation, um, having a stake in your local community, having control over your own retirement. Um, those are the things, those are the bullocks against the enroachment of government, which is what we're concerned about, because when you have a stake in your own future, you have a stake in your own community, you have a stake um, in the economy via housing and a job and a small business, that makes you dispositionally di- um, opposed to the kind of radical change that Labor was proposing. So the the challenge that they'll have is, is to what extent they're going to be able to move away from the boomer vote, which will start to decline naturally over time. So there's a juxtaposition between wanting to inflate house prices to 
um, featherbed boomers and to actually make housing more affordable, which is what they need to do to increase home ownership to establish a broader mainstream that will keep them more electorally um, successful, but also from a policy perspective will make people more disposed to the kind of limited government um, approach um, that the centre-right is more generally favourable of. One danger is... I think that's right, but if they're going to win the next election, um, it, that, that, that's really important. I agree, Dan, and we, we talked about this at some length last week um, uh, about the importance of you know growing home ownership and um, ensuring that families and individuals have a real stake in society through through that ownership society. But I think if they're going to win the next election, the next election will be a lot harder because it is a it'll be an older government and you know governments do eventually change. I, I would just focus on economic growth. I think. Now, they should do the other things and they should involve themselves in culture wars, but their primary task should be ensuring that we have an incredibly strong economy, which is why I think that the policy that they need to revive and they have an opportunity to do so this year is corporate income tax cuts. Now, not the um, sort of the, the soft corporate income tax cuts over 10 years or whatever it is that failed in the last parliamentary um, uh, session, but serious corporate income tax that look like the Trump-style corporate income tax or even bring us closer to sort of Singapore levels, that would be the biggest and the most powerful trigger on economic growth you could do. And you could do it right now while the Labor Party is on the back foot, while we're a long way out from the next election. Uh, you just get it over and done with. I, if, if I was directing the coalition's economic strategy, that is, I would go hell for leather I would too on a policy level, but I think it's very it would be very politically difficult for a few reasons. One is uh, they're committed to income tax cuts. Uh, the second is what are they going to cut from the budget in such a way as to not, again, give Labor ammunition that they will use for the next three years? I mean, what part of the health or education or welfare budgets uh, will they go at? These things, Labor have done a very, very good job of creating sacred cows around, especially in Medicare, which is heading towards where the NHS is in Britain is something that no matter how bad it is in terms of performance, you can't cut us, you know, you can't reform in any way. We can't even talk about outsourcing the payment mechanism for Medicare to make sure people get their payments quicker because when we did that last time, or we're being, we're being the right did that last time, or looked into it even, we saw the Medicare campaign where we were going to privatise Medicare and uh, you know push Nana off a cliff and all sorts of other things. Uh, the other thing is that the Coalition has ruled out company tax cuts. Malcolm Turnbull managed to turn company ta- a tax cut into a negative, uh, which is something I never thought would be possible. Uh, will Labor be able to get any traction on the old scare campaign of, well, you know, this is just a big a handout to the big end of town? I don't know. Maybe this election put to bed the idea uh, or the, 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 the notion that an absence of tax equals a handout. That's something that I personally find very frustrating. Maybe Australians see through it. I don't know. Yeah, um, although we did work out, I think we now have a bipartisan consensus that you are allowed to lower the corporate tax cut for small business. So uh, Daniel and I were talking yesterday and we thought, well, if we redefine small businesses, you know, any any revenue up to about $100 billion, then... Yeah, uh, get it. Yeah, that, <laughs> like, be it. It's like the migration exclusion zone, just to clear every business a small business <laughs> and uh, Bob's your uncle. And, and Gideon, to be clear, I can think of at least one very large public broadcaster that can save a billion dollars a year. All right, well, you, you go to the coalition party room and spring that idea on them and uh, see <laughs> yes. how uh, Music's my ears. I, I pray for the day, but uh, yeah, no, look, um, that would be a great little money spinner. No, but, it, but in all seriousness, if, if the coalition government isn't in a position now to do that sort of thing, while the Labor Party is in 
complete and utter disarray where um, uh, they are going through the soul-searching that the coalition has gone through for the last six years, almost continuously. If there's ever an opportunity to do major reform that would benefit the entire economy and the entire country and jobs and growth, and all the things they care about. This has to be that time. Yeah, look, and, and if, if uh, we don't, if we, if we if we can't if we if we can't um, encourage them to do so, if we if we sort of dismiss everything as politically unpalatable, then we are letting them off the hook, and we are encouraging bad government. Look, I don't disagree with you, and it's certainly something they should do. Uh, but again, I make the point to. They would have to go right now to have any chance of bedding it down prior to the next election. But that would mean that they are the first thing they do upon getting back into government is doing something that they ruled out and which was controversial at the time. I just don't see it happening. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh, push for it. So yeah, no, like I take no, your point. No, I will, Chris. I will give you extra reasons for why you just what you just said is right on this looking forward podcast. We've had some we've had some great discussions recently about how you know really. Theories of economic growth are up for grabs. Uh, and I was appalled to see the head of the RBA, Reserve Bank of Australia, yesterday in a speech. All he could come up with was, you know, basically, well, look, we can't do anything more with monetary policy. Uh, we'll probably cut interest rates, but that won't do much. So all we have left is fiscal policy, as in, you know, a bigger budget deficit, uh, as a stimulus or more infrastructure to get the economy moving. I thought, my God, that's one of the top economic policy makers in the land, <laughs> and that is that they're the only three things that could generate economic growth. Yeah, well, it's, it's a broader example of how our our economic and political institutions are broken. I mean, they're not yeah, they're so, not fit for purpose. So and, here's and, a ch- here's a chance to break by break, the way, break, break the wheel, break yeah, the wheel. Yeah, good luck with that. But the <laughs> they're, they're so entrenched. I mean, it's such entrenched interests. The, but the the RBA since they've had this current governor, they have less than ten percent of the time hit their mandate of a 2 to 3% inflation target. They, they have failed comprehensively as an institution. Um, they're, they're happy to talk about what the, what the temperature of the earth is going to be in 100 years' time and integrate that into <laughs> their climate models, but they can't even forecast prices in, a quarter, in one quarter's time. I mean, they need, it's, you need wholesale reform, but this, I agree with Gideon. It's not going to be a government that's interested in, in fundamentally reforming those broken institutions. That actually does give you a point. That, that does give you a point. A, something that would not be politically controversial but would be very significant is reform of the Reserve Bank. And certainly a renegotiation of the agreement between the Reserve Bank and the government, a change in the structure of monetary policy. The last time monetary policy was seriously controversial was the 1970s. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, we, we were, I mean, politically controversial and a mainstream talking point, but I, I think that's the opportunity now to actually seriously rethink our, our monetary constitution and, and, and that could have really far-reaching effects for, for growth. Absolutely, and we're just the people that can help with that. Uh, <laughs> did you not do your uh, doctorate on the banking system, Chris? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 think the, I, I think the Berg... Apropos of nothing. No, I think the Berg inquiry has a nice ring to it. Jeez, <laughs> the, the Berg report. Can you imagine how the Fairfax that, papers that's, react That's what to I've that. been texting Tim and James. Yeah, you're just <laughs> waiting for Josh to get back to you. Yeah, yeah. No, very good. Um, we have been talking about the centre-right. What does all this mean for the centre-left? Well, what it means for the centre-left is the Labor Party will go through a period as uh, what the Democrats are going through in the United States, albeit on a, a more moderate, to, to a more moderate extent. Um, the broader issue for the left is they have a, largely abandoned their traditional working class base um, over the last couple of decades, uh, not entirely, 
but they have moved away from it. And I think that's been accelerated over the last five years. And that's because their policies, such as around climate change, um, identity politics and so forth, um, are either in direct contradiction to the interest of the majority of workers or are irrelevant. So we can take the example of, you know, there's been 60,000 jobs destroyed in the manufacturing sector over the last um, decade uh, as a part and partly as a result of high and rising electricity prices and high taxes and, and a stifling regulatory burden uh, championed by the left and championed by um, the Labor Party, which is in the opposite interest of obviously of workers. Um, and so the question for the left is, will they start to try and return to those roots or are they so deeply embedded in this identity politics, climate change um, type narrative that they are stuck there? Um, and they can never really sort of get out of it. So I think that's the two the two main paths um, that they can go down. I think this election has broken up, blown wide open a division within the Labor Party that's been present for uh, a, a, bubbling around along for decades now, uh, which has been papered over by the fact that they looked like they were primed for, primed for government, which is the divide between old Labor, it's, as Dan said, its traditional working class base, and its new hipster inner city. Uh, ideologically driven, identity politics driven constituency. Um, it's similar to the way that the the coalition has been divided between you know its aspirational areas and the concerns of the Kuyongs and Higginses of the world. But this is even worse. That's not a dynamic that will go away. Uh, the Tanya Plibersek's and Penny Wong's of the Labor Party will not abandon their uh, their uh, the, the, the the hobby horses of the left these days. And as Dan sort of indicated, this will end up being like the Democrats in the US, which have doubled down on their, uh, on, on their uh, you know, identity politics and so on. They're, the Democrats in the US, by and large, if you look at the uh, contenders for 2020, aren't people that could connect with middle America in a way that Donald Trump had on, uh, did and before, and on the Democrat side, but, you know, people like Bill Clinton did. This will, the Labor Party will continue to struggle uh, with this, all of that said, I think if there is somebody that can bridge that divide and uh, present a friendly face that will bring those two constituencies together for Labor, it will be Anthony Albanese. And uh, if I can make a prediction, I think that Anthony Albanese will end up uh, with about 80 to 90 seats at the next election. And I'm saying that purely for the purposes <laughs> of being the first to call it and for posterity. Oh, personally, I was, I was going to try to call it myself just before. I, I, <laughs> I mean, this is the interesting thing about what's um, uh, going on right now. And it's all about how do they interpret, how does the left, the progressive and the sort of center left, how do they interpret these, these results? And you're seeing, you're seeing quite a lot of, um, uh, commentary from across the spectrum about whether Bill Trump was too neoliberal or, or, or too left. I, I think one of the more interesting themes of this commentary from the left is, is the, the, the fact that so many of the campaigns were deeply vacuous. So um, the top, we've already talked about the top end of town language, which is the worst reflection of, of the worst sort of Wayne Swanisms they <laughs> thought would um, smash the, you know, from appealing to people who would describe the Australian Conservative Party as Tory, you know, that, that tiny niche bracket who describe each other as comrades. But uh, there were some really interesting points made by Tim Lyons, the ex-ACTU Assistant Secretary, and um, uh, he was pointing out just the sheer emptiness of the union campaign in support of the Labor Party. I mean, we've had these, for many years now, we've had these huge protests on the uh, with this slogan, change the rules, 
never once hearing which specific rules yes. they would like to be changed. This sort of general phrase that anybody can read into whatever rule they don't like um, and, and pretending that that's some sort of powerful political slogan. The, um, it's just one of the, the most empty attempts at, at some sort of um, uh, reform movement. So I, I, I have sympathy for both sides of this interpretation, both the people who said he was too neoliberal and he was too left because he, he, he wasn't really clearly anything. How was so Chris, just can, to clarify, what was the neoliberal what's the criticism levied against Shorten about against being Shorten, neoliberal? So, so a, a lot of people a lot of people from particularly from the Bernie Sanders style left have been pointing out that we're in an age of Trump, we're in an age of Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn. It's time to actually stand up for something. And the claim mm. is that fiddling around with franking credits or So he wasn't um, enough of a Corbyn or, or what have you. Jeez, that's yeah, a, no, that's, that's the precisely argument. right. Look, yeah, okay. God, how much worse could yeah, it be? That, that is precisely the argument, and and, oh. what, and they're not wrong. They're, I mean, I think they are Bill Shorten is not. They're not. Bill Shorten is not calling for the nationalisation of the electricity sector. He's not the nationalisation of the, um, uh, the the trains or anything like that. So, so there there is an element that that Bill Shorten is. I, I think this is a very left wing opposition. Compared to the times, compared to counterparts overseas, I can understand why some on the hard left were very disappointed with this, and they may end up winning this this argument. I, I don't think we have to look to those arguments, Chris. I don't think that's a fair characterisation. I don't think you should look to where Labor was at this election versus Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn. I think the fairer assessment is look at Labor where it was now versus where it was the last time it was in government, the last time it was in opposition, and especially the last time it was in government before that uh, being, you know, the Hawke-Keating years and so on. Um, this was a, and I don't think you can say that they never put any colour at all around the Change the Rules campaign. I mean, they did put forward ideas like rejigging enterprise bargaining, like pat- bringing back patent bargaining, the idea of a living wage, I, uh, driving the minimum wage up even more, even though we already have the second highest hourly real minimum wage in the developed world. I think there was plenty of detail on the table there. I think there was um, so much detail that that's what people balked against. It was also effectively nationalising half of the electricity sector. Correct. Having a, a, a 50% renewables target basically means, and, and because you can only get there with significant government interference, I mean, it's the de facto nationalisation of half of that market. But I do, think, I do think that's an interesting observation about they weren't necessarily as ideologically left as Sanders and Corbyn. I think that's broadly speaking um, correct, but doesn't that lend a little bit of weight to the thesis that Australia is is a fundamentally sort of centre-right um, country that would, that's, you know, where that kind of politics simply wouldn't work? Or is it just that Labor, if they had have gone more left, maybe they, they would have won? I think it's a symptom of compulsory voting. I think that um, a lot of the time with a Sanders or a Corbyn or so on, the idea is to really, really excite the base and make sure all of them turn out. Uh, I think in Australia, parties are very mindful that you know, the base has to turn out anyway. That doesn't mean you can't do anything for your base because look at what happened with Malcolm Turnbull and so on. But what it also means is there are a lot of people turning up who probably don't want to vote, don't want to be there. Uh, the worst thing you can do is terrify them and put something forward that they don't understand that they'll uh, or, or they don't like or that, you know, frightens the horses and that they walk out and vote against. Yeah, and, and, and uh, of course, Corbyn and uh, what's happening with the Democrats are products of their... Um uh, unique selection methods. Mm. Uh, the Labor Party allowed the members to drive that vote, and um, uh, lots of well, 
Trotskyites, you know, joined the Labor Party, voted Corbyn in. Now we have a Trotskyite opposition. Um, and don't forget Bernie Sanders isn't even in the Democratic he, Party he, and he's he, polling second. So he, Exactly. And Joe Biden, who's apparently a centrist, but... Exactly. And um, uh, whereas <laughs> the ALP has a shandy, I think one of the... Um, I mean, at the level of symbolism, uh, I think one of the saddest things uh, for the ALP was that um, Bill Shorten, who when he started his political career uh, outside parliament and in, inside parliament, modelled himself very much on on Bob Hawke's positioning um, as a champion of the workers and also very much in a you know a mainstream social democrat, eulogised the, the Hawke government. Mm. And, uh, you know, two, three days before the election... Uh, he went to Bankstown essentially to, um, you know, in, inhabit the the clothes of of Gough Whitlam, to you know sort of jettison that 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 Hawkean ideal of a of a centrist social democratic government in favour of you know crash rule crash big agenda big program change Australia, uh, and just at the moment uh, when when Bob Hawke passed, um, and you know I think uh, the future for uh, the Labor Party is. is could in Australia could could in some ways be uh, seen as a choice between the the Hawke and Whitlam traditions. I think that's a really really good point, Scott. That's my observation about Bill Shorten. Um, you know, I, you know, people always said you know Malcolm Turnbull was under the thumb of the right wing elements of his party. They should have let Malcolm be Malcolm. I don't believe that for a second. But I think it does apply to the Labor Party. I think Bill Shorten is a tragic figure insofar as he was captive of the Penny Wongs and the Tanya Plibersex and to some extent the Albos. Uh, if they had let Bill be Bill, maybe we'd have a different result. This was not the Bill Shorten who rocked up at, in Tasmania in a bomber jacket, connecting with the people and 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 uh, with, with those two workers uh, trapped in the uh, that mine in Tasmania. This was a Bill Shorten who was hollowed out and was parroting lines. I believe given to a because he thought they'd work because he thought the times had changed and people wanted left wing populism. But also uh, he did one thing he did do was hold Labor together for six years, and he did that by rolling well, over for the left. But he also he also did that because he was protected the system. So this is slightly counter to your point, Gideon. But I think if there's one piece of advice I would give the Labor Party right now is get rid of the leadership rule that they put in after Kevin Rudd that gives um, extra protection to the leader in the Labor Party. And you can make it. I think you can make a compelling argument that the fact that Bill Shorten was protected by those leadership rule changes left him quite complacent. He's yeah. not going to be challenged by Albo in any serious way. He wasn't, he wasn't going to be seriously challenged for the leadership. That was that was just something he never had to worry about, so he never had to manage off, oh. didn't have to manage off those factions in the same way that a um, comparable leader five years ago. If Labor wanted to get around those rules, they would have. I just want to, that, I just want to make an observation that's going back to um, a point that Scott had made about unions um, and contrasting where the unions are now to where they were, say, in the 1980s. I think the, the 1980s, I think, was an interesting time for, for Labor because you had a period of economic you know, stagflation. You had high, in, high inflation, high unemployment, and you had the price, you know, price accords with, with the unions and with Labor. And that was partly driven by um, a sense of... there was I think it was primarily an electoral, uh, political uh, imperative that they wanted to get inflation down, they wanted to get unemployment down, and the way that they sought to do that was to say to the unions, stop pushing wages up, because if you keep pushing wages up, you have more inflation, more unemployment. So they formed a pact with the unions to to hold wages growth um, 
quite often it was negative real wages growth for a period of time. Um, and that was that was the mechanism by which they sought to to establish labor as credible economic managers. Um, and also unions benefited because of course if you suppress wages growth you'll have more employment growth which gives unions more members. So and it funded what they called the social wage as well. The yeah, economic growth. Exactly. So there was there, there was an element of economic responsibility from unions and labor brought on by economic circumstances. Um, and I'm what we're missing I think in terms we talk about economic reform, Chris is talking about corporate tax cuts. We I think we're missing a bit of a narrative or an imperative to actually engage in reform because we haven't had a recession for close to three decades we've got real wages are relatively flat but there's not that sense of dramatic urgency even though i think the economy is far weaker uh, just because of its enormous reliance on population growth and housing as the sole drivers of growth which is not sustainable but until i uh, my biggest fear is that until there is some kind of calamity like the stagflation like a, a significant downturn that just getting the political class to engage in reform when they think they can just keep on sailing through is going to be extremely difficult and we need to think very hard about how we communicate reform as an imperative. We'll be talking about that much more in uh, future episodes of uh, Looking Forward, no doubt, because that is the, the challenge. How, how can we have our reform without the uh, ideally without the crisis that might bring it on? Uh, we have reached that segment of the show where we uh, talk books and culture and what we've been reading, watching and listening to. Who'd like to kick us off? I might. I've <clears throat> been watching a docudrama series, which is sort of an interesting... I've never seen a um, such a thing before. It's sort of half documentary, half reenactments with actors on, on what happened at the time. It's called Valley of the Boom on National Geographic. I taped it back in February, I think, and never got around to watching it. And I'm up to the third episode. It's about the browser wars in the 90s and the, the, the start of the real birth of Silicon Valley, the float of Netscape, the, you know, the, ultimately the dot-com boom, though I'm, not, uh, though I'm not up to where the boom or the bubble burst just yet, but it's a fascinating look at that time. Uh, first of all, the 90s is that wonderful wedge of time between the end of the Cold War and September 11 and the optimism and uh, real peacetime prosperity there, but also the growth of the internet as a, an un a gloriously unregulated space. And it reminded me a little bit of your fantastic book, um, Chris, Against Public Broadcasting, available from all good bookstores, um, <laughs> where you gave a very good and fascinating overview of the birth of conventional broadcasting and the comparison between the, BB, the, the British system, which was highly regulated, highly licensed, and the US system where... It, like the birth of the internet, it was a largely unregulated, the allocation of spectrum and so on was a largely unregulated space. And we've seen the, you know, the results where the, the preeminent leader in broadcasting and entertainment is hands down the US. Yeah, no, that, that's right. And I think part of that browser story is that there is a deep involvement of government in part of that because, of course, uh, uh, in the middle of those browser wars, the um, uh, European government is trying to regulate and launch antitrust campaigns against Microsoft under the idea that they would bundle their browser. And I think it was Windows 98. But, um, uh, my, my memory may, may escape me. And and so there's a big interesting part about the um, discussions that we're having today because, of course, now antitrust authorities in the United States, even in Australia with the ACCC, are talking about, well, what are we going to, how are we going to respond to what looks like remarkable growth in, in new digital services? I think the lesson of the 1990s is that um, 
government should stay the hell away from this, but it's certainly time to go back to that history and see what the outcomes were of uh, antitrust for good or bad. Yes, uh, it is remarkable to look back and think that all of the the biggest argument about at the time was uh, the the key to the whole internet was supposedly the browser. (laughs) It's just, it's actually just demented. And And the great irony is who uses uh, Microsoft Internet Explorer anymore, no. or Microsoft Edge, or whatever they call it. Uh, either you use either Chrome or Duck, Firefox or Duck, whatever Duck else. DuckDuckGo, yeah, Duck. yeah, whatever. You know, there's all all kinds of things. And 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 yeah, the deeper lesson to be drawn is, you know, uh, now we're obsessing over similarly stupid things. But yeah. Mm. Uh, so I'm reading a book by John Gray, Seven Types of Atheism, which was released last year. I was a little bit late out of the gates and getting to it, but it's a great book. He's an entertaining writer. He doesn't pull his punches, uh, so it's very very enjoyable read if nothing else uh he he makes a few main points it's sort of a critique of atheism and a lot of atheists of the sam harris type mold new atheists as he calls them uh but also um a, a bit of a broadside against uh some of the the modern left and, and postmodernists. um a couple of interesting observations from the book and arguments he makes and i think they'd be immediately recognizable to some of the discussions discussions we've just been having on policies the religious nature he argues, of most types of atheism um, and also the illusory nature of progress. That's sort of his two main um, arguments or thesis in there. With that's The first point is immediately re- recognisable with um, issues like you know climate change and, and other such issues that have filled the void um, of uh, you know a secular society with fewer people believing in traditional um, religions. Um, and on the second point, he... Well, well, Sorry, let me return to the first point because it, it reminds when we went to an event by Rod Dreher on on Monday night, who's been touring. He's the author of the Benedict Option and um, and a blogger at American Conservative, and they both make a similar point, which is interesting because um, Dreher is a devout Christian and um, John Gray is a devout atheist, if you want to you know, put it that way. And they both make the same point that. The, the issue with um, th- th- they claim that there's an issue with science but not science per se but scientism the, the sort of worship of science mm. or the idea that the only source of knowledge is through science and they're both very critical um, of that idea and correspondingly critical of the idea that um, that the purpose of religion is to give you a factual account of history or to give you a factual account of the world or of science or of, of how things work um, their argument is, well, the primary point of religion is is to give you meaning, to give you other things in your life, but not to be a, a method of the discovery of, of you know, atoms and, and other things of that nature. So I think it's quite a timely book, quite provocative. John Gray is pretty pessimistic and negative, so if you're... If you want to pick me up, don't read it. But um, but it's, it's a pretty penetrating, interesting interesting book that's uh, very provocative. So this week I visited the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza in Dallas because when you're on these um, uh, work trips, you try to see as much tour- do as much tourism as you can. So the Sixth Flo- uh, Floor Museum is where um, Lee Harvey Oswald shot JFK out the window as he was traveling as JFK was traveling in the vehicle through Dealey Plaza. I've done a lot of, I'm really interested in the JFK um, story and the assassination story because it's a, a fascinating historical vignette. Um, uh, and, and, and I can recommend some things for people to read in a moment. But what I was really struck by, and if you're familiar with the JFK assassination story, how small Dealey Plaza actually is. It's not a very big area. And sometimes when we look at 
pictures, like there's uh, pictures of the area or films of, like there's a Pruder film. It seems like this huge open space and you might think to yourself, how could Lee Harvey Oswald make such a long shot? Turns out it's a really enclosed space and the grassy knoll is really, really close to where the car would have been. So I'm very much on the um, bandwagon that Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone assassin in the book that I would recommend, which I read some years ago, but it's still a magnificent, magnificent book. is um, called Reclaiming History, The Assassination of President John F. Kennedy by Vincent Bugliosi. Um, it's a very extensive, very um, uh, lengthy explanation of why Lee Harvey Oswald definitely did it, and he almost definitely did it by himself. What was his motivation, though, given that he'd lived in Russia? Was it the Russians? He, well, he, he was... Looking a, forward he was takes a dangerous um, turn. He, he was <laughs> no, in all sorry, so, so uh, He had lived in Russia. Idiot. Let's I talk mean, about the moon landing next. <laughs> no, he'd, he'd lived in Russia and he returned. He, he, had, um, he had voluntarily outsold himself to Russia. He's a defector. He was formerly Marine, defected to Russia. Came back, was invited back because we allowed... Well, the United States allowed defectors back. Um, uh, shouldn't have done so in this case, but he um, uh, he worked himself up into a frenzy and as a firm opponent of what he saw as an incorrigibly right-wing government decided to assassinate the president. Uh, terrible tragedy, but it uh, must be fascinating to, to see it all and actually be able to, to, to step it out. Um, my uh, cl- I'm much closer to home because it was from my couch that I watched uh, the final episode of, of Game of Thrones and I won't really talk about the final episode of Game of Thrones, but just some some reflections on the on the whole series in the final season. Uh, you know, a lot of people have been following it, have been disappointed. Others are defending it. I've probably been more defending it. But one of the things I have noticed is it's felt incredibly rushed. Um, only six episodes in the final season. Some very impressive episodes. Um, some duds. Um, and I'm thinking, goodness, you know, after eight years, you think they would have actually stepped some of these things out um, properly. But uh, I was then listening to um, a wonderful podcast by Jonah Goldberg and Norman Potter. It's uh, out of America, uh, uh, Glop Culture. And they made this great point because I also watched uh, the Avengers uh, Endgame, uh, the end of the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe cycle, and they were making the point that uh, what's happened, uh, you know, 20 years ago The Sopranos came along and the issue was that TV was now as good as as movies, but now they're increasingly indistinct. You know, movies are becoming more like TV and TV is becoming like movies. So, like, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe um, is really like a TV series over, you know, all of those films, 18 or 19 films, might even be more. Um, they're episodic um, and and then it's all wrapped up in 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 the season finale, uh, which is what Endgame was. You'd actually call it a season finale. And conversely, Game of Thrones started to look more and more like movie making. So I'm like, why did they hurry up um, the final season and have these ridiculous jumps in time? And um, you know, in the final episode, you know, something really really big happens, and then it's just completely anticlimactic. There's no reaction to it. And it was because they put so much into the production values that they realised they wouldn't have time to make any more episodes and it would cost too much. Each episode of the final season of Game of Thrones is like a movie. Um, uh, but then they shot themselves in the foot because you don't actually have that, what should be the luxury of television, of, of pacing things out. So there's a lot 
uh, to consider in Game of Thrones. So I don't think we'll ever see anything quite like it again because people will realise, you know, there are limits to overdoing the production values and, and creating this incredible cinematic scope. I mean, the first episode, of course, was cinematic and shot in darkness and no, because people were sitting in their lounge rooms, they couldn't see a bloody thing. Um, so, my, so my objections weren't really with some of the big spectacles like the, you know, the, the big uh, firestorm over the city I thought was actually very well done and made me think of Dresden and Hiroshima and all sorts of things. But the, the final episode was, was a bit of a joke actually at how, how quickly they wrapped everything up. Um, it's, an, it's an interesting problem, isn't it? Because we are discovering still this long after the um, Sopranos discovering how to do these extremely expensive high prestige television shows but not make them go into infinity if it had kept with the pace of the first five or so seasons this the show would have never ended can't, <laughs> you can't be that beautiful. flow yeah yeah, they, or, yeah they, exactly <laughs> just an incredibly expensive sitcom yeah, but, yeah um, they, they got lost in it they were still introducing new characters in like the sixth season or something <laughs> And then it's like, oh my god, we better start killing them now. <laughs> you know, in next week's episode, we kill off a major character. Run a book on which one. Sports bet will pay out. Uh, so anyway, that's my that's my Game of Thrones reflecting. I'd say more, but I wouldn't want to get into too many spoilers. You've just heard another episode of Looking Forward. Before I thank our wonderful panelists today, I just want to put in a plug uh, for a forthcoming special episode. As many of you will know, uh, the Australian Libertarian Society's amazing annual conference, uh, the Freedman Conference, is on in Sydney this coming weekend on Friday. I'll be joined by Dr Chris Berg, John Roscombe, the Executive Director of the IPA, Renee Gorman, uh, the National Manager of Generation Liberty, and we'll be doing a special episode of Looking Forward, and the topic is what will freedom look like in 2050? This is a topic especially addressed towards the younger members of our listening audience, many of whom are members of the IPA's Generation Liberty program, many of whom will be in the audience. We're certainly encouraging them to come along uh, and uh, we'll, be looking, we'll be taking questions from them uh, and looking forward to an engaging episode with some great uh, sallies from the floor and great responses from our panellists. Chris, are you excited? I'm absolutely thrilled. Friedman, the Friedman Conference is a fantastic event every single year. Last year we did a, a panel together as well, Scott, and it was a huge success and can't wait for this to be even more entertaining. Yep, so we'll we'll get that up uh, on our podcast platform in due course, but if you are at Friedman, please do come along and uh, especially we encourage the young younger members of the audience uh, to ask questions of the panellists. So, Looking Forward is, of course, brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. To support our research and this podcast, you can join or donate at ipa.org.au. A big thank you to our panellists today. First of all, Dr Chris Berg on the line from Texas. Thank you. Daniel Wild. Thank you. Gideon Rosner. Cheers, Scott. And today, our very special stand-in producer, uh, Saul Muscatel. Thanks, Saul. Thank you, Scott. Great work, mate. Great work. Uh, We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week. Mm -hmm.